A Sikorsky S-61 is landing at the Pan Am building when something goes very wrong. What caused this helicopter to tip and cause so much damage? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hola. Welcome back. So, oh, we messed up last episode, by the way. That was our year three episode. <laughs> that was our anniversary <laughs> episode. Oops. For year three. Maybe we put it in the intro. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. Shows you how... On top of our crap we are. So, that's just how... Happy anniversary, guys! It's been three years we've been doing this. That's weird. Thanks to our new patron. Totally not the FBI. Totally not the FBI. That is what <laughs> they yeah. go by on Patreon. Patreon. That's really funny. I totally believe you. Totally. Totally not the FBI. If you are the FBI, great. Welcome. If you're not the FBI, very valid name. <laughs> also great. And welcome. You're going to send in stories. Remember, they're going to be for November. So if you want to send more spooky stories, you can. I will take spooky stories any day of the year. But yes. They will not be heard but, until November. But they won't be heard till November. Maybe December, depending on how many people send a story. Yes, true. Very Because very true. we got an influx of them and then we didn't know what to do. We had like three and a half months. Panic. Of <laughs> panic. There was panic. There was panic. So also, I don't know why this is happening, but there's a few of you that are turning in stories and it's submitting them twice. I don't know if you mean to do that on purpose. Or if it's or, broken. Or if our form is broken. It's only happening with one person, and I can't figure out why it's happening. So I don't know. I don't know if you're turning them in twice because you don't think it's submitting. It is. Or if it's duplicating it on our end, I can't figure it out. But I don't know. It's not a big deal. No, but if you're thinking it's not submitting, it is. Just be aware of that. That's the truth. Check out the merch stuff. Holidays are coming up. Get your favorite people some merch. Some all, merch. All three of us are wearing merch today. Yes, yep. all by accident. We are all wearing our black hard landing shirts. <laughs> but we are all wearing different ones. Yes, we are. Yes. So, there we go. Join the party. Yeah. Anything else? I don't think there was anything else really news-wise, other than happy three years. That is just so it's so strange. I, I remember when this Very started, and it does not feel like. I remember three when years you ago. suggested it, and Miranda and I were like, "Yeah, okay, sure, totally, uh huh." And here we are, three years <laughs> later, over three years later. So, with that in mind, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering New York Airways Flight Nine Seven Two. Thanks to Rich for recommending this episode. Yes, this is a different one. This is quite different from yes our normal coverage, but. Still no less interesting. Fair warning, though, this one has a lot of detail in what happened in the accident. This occurred on May 16th of 1977. So not that long after Tenerife. No. Couple months. Not at all. Yep. This was a Sikorsky S61L helicopter with the tail number November 619 Papa Alpha. Yes, we're talking about a helicopter. It is the civilian version of the military version. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is a very peculiar thing. So this was a service provided by New York Airways for Pan Am, hence the tail number is Papa Alpha. They provided this service to and from the major airports of New York City, Newark and LaGuardia and JFK, to Manhattan. And their primary location of service in Manhattan was the Pan Am building, which is now the MetLife building. 
I think it was technically the MetLife building at that time, too. In the report, it still called it the Pan Am building. Either way, it's that building. It's, yep. It's that building. On top. It is 200 Park Avenue, Manhattan. It is. So these were- Ah, I have been proven wrong. At its opening, the building was named for Pan American World Airways, for which it served as headquarters. The Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, or MetLife, bought the Pan Am building in 1981. So there you go. So it wasn't until the 80s that it changed to MetLife. And used it as their headquarters before selling the building in 2005. Yep. That also means that the musical Thoroughly Modern Millie was incorrect. Yes. In case you were wondering. Because it wasn't any of those things at the time. No. It wasn't even built at that time. Nope. It might have been a different MetLife building, but... Anyways... This was a passenger helicopter, very large, very large single rotor helicopter. So it had one very large rotor on top. It wasn't a Chinook style helicopter with twin rotors. But this was a very powerful, very sizable helicopter, no less, capable of carrying quite a few people, actually, for its size. The captain for this flight was Lee G. Richmond. He was 46 years old at the time. He had 11,721 hours total, of which... 2,200 hours were on the Sikorsky, which is a lot of hours. He had a lot of hours total for helicopter pilot, but also a lot on the type, given that all of the flights they perform, very short. Mm. Very short. We're talking minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're only going from the airport to the yeah, building. Manhattan. Yeah. Which is not far, <laughs> it turns out. By air, especially. Right. The first officer for this flight is John F. Flanagan. That's such an American name. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> Irish-American name. Flanagan. Flanagan. He was 31 years old at the time. He had 1,768 hours total, of which 61 were on the Sikorsky. He had been certified on the Sikorsky for one month to the day. Oh, well, that would be why he only has 61 hours. You are correct. <laughs> the flight originated at JFK as Flight 971. They had brought 20 passengers and three crew to the Pan Am building at 200 Park Avenue in Manhattan. They approached from the northeast side of the building, where they then landed, then taxied to the boarding gate area, quote-unquote. Mm. This is at the top of the building. There's not a whole lot up there. It actually has a very sizable roof, because of the way that building is. If you've ever seen it, you would probably understand. Mind you, this is not a normal-looking building, if you've never seen it. It's an octagon. like. But a weird stretched octagon. It is weird. Yep. This required a 180-degree turn, then a taxi of about 10 to 20 feet into the parking position. The captain had been the pilot flying for the previous leg, and he had made a smooth landing at 5.32 p.m. local time on the building before using the tail rotor to turn the aircraft. He then parked the helicopter, used the brakes, and left the tailwheel unlocked, as this was standard procedure for the company. Personnel on the ground then chalked the helicopter once it was parked, and the brakes were set. The passengers got off the helicopter while the crew remained, ready to take another load of passengers back to JFK. The engine was not shut down for the passenger change, as this was normally just a few-minute change. I mean, this was a rapid stop. Like, landed, parked, chucked, doors open, everybody's out. Like that. I mean, that makes sense. Yep. The captain remained the pilot flying, with his hands on the flight controls while they were parked on the building's roof, keeping the collective bottomed out which kept the helicopter from lifting. The collective is what changes the pitch of the rotors mm -hmm. and increases torque. So this allows the helicopter to lift and set without changing the speed of the rotor. Mm -hmm. So right now he has it set to stay put and not, you know, fly away. Right, yep. so he's holding it straight down. It's like a park brake handle. It oh, goes okay. up and down. 
and he's got it pushed straight down, which is why it's called bottomed out. Okay, yeah. Meanwhile, the first officer filled out the flight log with his knee pressed against the collective to ensure that it remained bottomed as well, while the passengers were unloaded and loaded. After a period of about one to two minutes of being parked, all 20 passengers had deplaned and the next batch headed back to JFK on Flight 972 were now beginning to board. Four passengers had boarded and others were approaching the helicopter, with one woman beginning to climb the steps up to the cabin when the flight crew and cabin crew heard a loud metallic crunching sound that was followed immediately by the helicopter tilting to the right suddenly. The captain, having heard the noise before the tilt began, believed that the sound was coming from the rotor system, so he immediately shut the engines down just as the helicopter was beginning to tilt to the right. The first sound was followed by another crumpling sound, which was accompanied by a slight yawing motion. The woman who made it to the top of the stairs as the helicopter was beginning to tilt, plus another passenger who had just boarded, both fell against the door as the helicopter began tilting to the right. Another passenger that had just put his foot on the first step when the helicopter started tilting toward him. So he immediately stepped back down and with his hand on the fuselage of the helicopter, walked toward the front of the helicopter, toward the cockpit end, along the side, as it fell toward him. The rotor blades struck the concrete of the helipad just moments after the tilt began, causing them to break apart violently. The flight crew heard the plexiglass break as fragments of the rotor blades hit the window above the first officer while the helicopter continued to tilt further and further to the right. The helicopter came to rest fully on its right side with four passengers and three crew inside, all of whom were only minorly injured or not injured at all. At that time, the cabin crew member began giving the four passengers that were on the helicopter evacuation orders and instructions on how to get out. The passenger who had walked toward the front of the helicopter from the outside was miraculously uninjured. He didn't get hit by anything. How that happened, I can't even fathom. He was literally along the helicopter as it came crashing down on him, basically. He's just a superhuman. Something. I don't know. He managed to walk away. At least that's what the report said. However, all of that said, that's where the good fortune ends, sadly. The shattered rotor blades struck other passengers outside the helicopter who were waiting to board, seriously injuring one while four others had perished. One was taken to the hospital and perished later, but three died on impact because the rotor blades just... Straight up hit them. Are fast and sharp? Yep. Turns out. The rotor blade fragments shattered the waiting room slash control room windows nearby, and a lighting fixture fell inside. So there's literally this little tiny building on top of the building that has a little, like, glass waiting room, and it's also their control tower for the building, and fragments just shattered all five windows as it struck. Other large pieces of the rotor blade were thrown from the building and down onto the streets below. Unfortunately, one of these pieces fell onto two people at the corner of Madison Avenue and 43rd Street, which is a whole square block away. Jesus. So it flew over another building down to the ground. So there's a map from the report. It doesn't look great, but you can see the octagonal Pan Am building and the person killed was technically two blocks away. Sort of. Yeah, it flew quite some distance There's also numbers all over the map indicating where various other pieces of wreckage went. Yes, these pieces were shattered all over... Like a four-block radius. Yeah, quite a radius of this building. Yeah, that's not great. No, not at all. Unfortunately, there was a a female just walking along the street. It struck her and killed her on the site. Just walking around New York City minding her own business. When down came a rotor blade. It also injured another person seriously on the ground... 
Some separated leading edge counterweights fell onto two parked cars in the street below, doing serious damage to these cars. Damn. Can you imagine yep. you could walk out the building to go get your car and it's crushed? Big giant chunks of metal have crushed the top of your car. You're like, excuse me, what the hell? Those are labeled 15. Quite some distance away. Another square block in the other direction. Over by three. About uh, the the leading edge counterweights ended up in a total of 111 locations. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably a bunch of these little weights along the, but they came flying at force. Looks like mostly up and down Lexington Avenue. Mm-hmm. Which was the direction that the helicopter fell. Some along 47th, some along 48th. Yeah, that's most of it. It looks like some of it ended up on the Chrysler building or in the Chrysler building. Potentially around that area anyways. Speaking of things landing in buildings. Yes, getting there. That's my next point. An 11-foot section of a rotor blade struck the 36th floor of the west side of the Pan Am building, causing extensive damage is all they wrote in the report, but from my understanding, it went through the window and destroyed an office. Ew. So that was a whole thing. I still can't quite figure out how that happened. Yeah. So the helicopter fell. It sounds like it boomeranged. Pretty much. It had to have. The helicopter fell to the the east. Yeah. Which is why everything went toward Lexington. This was on the west side of the building. Well, so was the person who was killed. Right. They were also on the west side. These were the largest chunks of blade went to the west side. But this was not good. A six-foot section of the rooftop edge railing was bent outward from impact debris. Once the helicopter impacted, it just shattered all over the rooftop. Yeah. The helicopter was, of course, extremely heavily damaged in the impact. Well, obviously, the rotors are gone. The, it did fly again. Which is just absolutely crazy to me. The captain and first officer, when they came to rest, they were hanging in their harnesses, of course, sideways. And the captain looked over at the first officer. I mean, he was fine. But he realized that the first officer's exit was covered because yeah. they had rolled to the right. And normally, he would be part of the evacuation responsibilities, but the cabin door, which was two sliding doors, yeah, one of them had slid and jammed in the doorway, so there was no getting to the cabin to go help. Thankfully, there was only four people on board, so the cabin crew member, who was okay, helped them get out, but the captain had to climb out his door yeah. up onto the left side, which was straight up toward the sky. Yes. And walked down the left side where he opened the door, the passenger door on the side to help them get out. And he then walked along and was able to get down from there and help people down from the helicopter toward the rear. Another thing of note was that because of the people that were injured and killed on Madison Avenue, there was initially a 911 call for a jumper who had fallen on another person. They thought that the person who had died had fallen on the person who was injured. Not knowing that they had actually been struck by a very large piece of metal. Yes. So that was initially what the 911 call was for. And then they found that the only person on staff at the building for the flights, the person on the ground, basically, didn't call the emergency number that they have, basically, to report an accident. Yeah. They found that this had not been activated at the station. So... Other people had called in the accident, and it took fire and rescue quite some time, actually, to get there. 
because they had issues figuring out the elevators and how to get up there. It took 10 minutes until they started applying any kind of foam or anything after the accident, which for being in the middle of one of the busiest cities in the world is a really long time. That is a long time. (laughs) So all of that was going on. This was just a really chaotic, very quick accident. So that's all I've got. So what mechanical thing broke? (laughs) Not what you think, probably. No. This investigation was performed by the... CAB. NTSB. I thought you said it was a cab report. No, it's an NTSB report. It is an NTSB report. But it looks like a cab report. It's in the structure of the cab reports because this would have been very early at the NTSB. And it was typewritten, not well. This aircraft was not required with, nor was it required to be equipped with... An FDR or a CVR. Not entirely correct. It was not required to be equipped with, nor was it equipped with a flight data recorder. However, it was equipped with a cockpit voice recorder. Mm -hmm. That's shocking. I know. Crazy. Especially for the era. Yeah. And that recording's most notable part was two minutes and 21 seconds following landing. No crew conversation was recorded while the helicopter was on the roof, but the cockpit area microphone picked up a cracking sound. And then a banging sound as the rotor blades came in contact with the roof. Not good. Upon examining the wreckage, it was found that the damage was contained almost exclusively to the rotor blades. Yeah, the helicopter had fallen, but this does some serious damage to the engines, however. But it, yeah, it primarily destroyed the rotor blades. And the helicopter, I mean, sure, it had a little bit of body damage from having, you know, rolled onto the concrete. But not as much as you would think. Mostly to the rotor blades, with one very notable exception. The right main landing gear was separated from the fuselage and was laying beneath the aircraft. Well, that's why it tipped. Turns out... Yeah. (laughs) Upon closer analysis, it was found that the right landing gear was in pieces. The wreckage had to be brought elsewhere via the elevators... I can't imagine how they horrible. did that. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like walking like out of your office or something. I mean, I'm sure everybody in the building knew what happened, but then like visitors to the building, like going to get on the elevator and somebody's just walking off with pieces of a helicopter. No big deal. What the heck was that? <laughs> <laughs> so to describe what broke where, I need to paint you a picture. Or you can look on our website, which I would prefer you do because I'm really bad at this. So, the Sikorsky 61L has two main landing gear, one on each side. They are wheels that extend out from the fuselage. The oleo strut goes directly up from the wheel vertically, and at the top of the oleo strut, an energy-absorbing strut goes at an angle to connect with the upper fuselage. At the same juncture with the oleo strut and energy-absorbing strut, a linkage fits there that goes to a V-shape, and the two points of the V connect to the fuselage. There's another similar fitting that connects lower down on the oleo strut, and the two points of that V connect to the two points of the other V on the fuselage. It's way easier if you just look at the picture. Just go Mm -hmm. look at it. The part that came under suspicion was the forward fitting of the two V-shaped linkages. This was not a small helicopter. No. It had fractured near the end of the tube assembly, and the pictures of the fracture show it to be a straight edge. Lo and behold, by using a scanning electron microscope, or SEM, investigators found striations on the fracture surface consistent with... Fatigue. Fatigue. High cycle fatigue, specifically. 
The fatigue failure had started at a surface pit of unknown origin. They couldn't determine if it came from outside damage or from manufacturing, but it propagated, came in contact with a smaller discontinuity in the material, and continued for 40% of the fracture surface before failing in overload, since the remaining 60% was holding all of the force intended to be spread over 100% of the area. When that forward fitting failed, all of the load transferred to the aft fitting, which quickly failed in overload as well. The crack location was at the bottom of the fitting, suggesting that bending stress put the bottom of the fitting in tension and the top in compression. Was the design of the part to blame? The material used for the fitting was 7075 T73 aluminum, a very strong aluminum that can be on par with some steels in terms of strength. That's pretty crazy. Originally, the fitting was designed with 7079 T6 aluminum alloy, but after a right main landing gear failed on another helicopter due to stress corrosion, these helicopters were retrofitted with the 7075 T73 fittings because that material is resistant to stress corrosion, and investigators found that it did its job in this regard because stress corrosion was not a factor here. Now, stress corrosion is different from what we typically think of corrosion. Stress corrosion occurs because of the composition of the material itself and how it reacts with the environment. For example, the old aluminum alloy 7079 T6 had copper in it that reacts with water in the air. Yes. That combined with loading caused cracking inside of the part. You couldn't see it from the outside. So it just catastrophically failed with no warning. It actually wasn't most prominent in aircraft. They found this problem to be much bigger in bridges. Yeah. Like, that dozens. has water like uh-huh. right next to it. Turns out that has killed dozens of people, so they stopped using these alloys for pretty much everything. Yep. Corrosion, as we normally think of it, it affects the exposed surface of the part, and investigators did find actual corrosion pitting on the crack surface. So as the fatigue crack got bigger, some corrosive material, perhaps water, got into the crack also, which doesn't help things. Investigators looked into the discontinuity that was the origin of the fatigue crack. They tried to determine if corrosion was the source or if it was a substitutive defect, much like episode one, UA-232, taking it all the way back. All the way back. But the discontinuity was bigger than that. They found adhesive that's normally used in the landing gear assembly within the surface pit discontinuity, but they were unable to determine if it got there before or after the fracture. Ultimately, with everything I just mentioned, they couldn't determine what caused the surface pit, so they just called it undetermined. Investigators analyzed the actions of the flight crew to determine if they had done anything to exacerbate the situation. Having the engines running and the rotor turning had no effect on the failure of the landing gear. Good to know. Witnesses reported that the landing was gentle. Yep. Both crew reported during their interviews that all they had time to do was close the engine speed controls, and investigators found that to be the proper action. Doing so probably prevented further damage, injury, and fire. Here's a question. Should the crew have applied the rotor brake? There is a device which stops the rotor from turning. The answer is no. The rotor brake is designed to stop the blades when they are operating at a speed of 40% or lower. These were operating at full speed. They determined that basically, because the unfortunate thing about that too is above 40%, the rotor brake does basically nothing. Except potentially catch fire. Right. Well, because it's too hot. Friction, yeah. Yeah. So the reality is it wouldn't have done anything anyways, even if they had time to do it. But they also determined that there just wasn't enough time. Correct. (laughs) Which the captain attested to. Yep. 
Investigators also discussed whether or not the rotor should be shut down during in-planing or deplaning rather than have it continue running, and they actually concluded that it was safer to leave it running. Frequent rotor shutdowns shorten the service life of the rotor and engine components, and using the brake to shut it down so frequently increases the risk of fire. Accelerating the engine instead of keeping it in a steady state also is more dangerous as there are more likely to be malfunctions in that process. The reason that actually makes the most sense to me is that helicopters are more stable because of the gyroscopic effects of the rotating blades. Mm -hmm. It helps maintain being steady during variable high winds such as you might experience on a skyscraper. What do you know? And that's all I got. Okay. Fatigue! Fatigue. Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast, everybody. And that is the shirt I am wearing today. Yep. It's been is. a while, actually. Yeah, it has been. <laughs> this like, is a very quite a while. different kind of incident due to fatigue, though. This is one of those things that I guess you just wouldn't think about. Except that it had actually happened once before to the Sikorsky. They were well aware of such a thing happening. Just been another, a landing know, gear just falling off? Yeah, well, there had been another slight gear collapse because of this on a previous Sikorsky years earlier. You might have actually heard me mention it. That was when they decided to change the fitting oh, from yeah. the aluminum alloy to just aluminum. Because right. turns out copper is not good. I think that helicopter was in California, which is also a humid environment. Correct. It was Los Angeles Airways, I think. So. There you go. Don't put copper in your aluminum alloys that are then going into a humid environment and being loaded consistently. Yep. Just, it's a bad idea. Okay, well. We shall take a break and then do the normal stuffs. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We back. We back. Hello. Hello again. Let's go over some findings, recommendations, and the problem Such. cause. Skipping the first few findings because they are exactly as you expect. This was fine, and this was fine, and this was fine. They found that the fracture of the right main landing gear forward fitting resulted from a fatigue crack. I like these findings. They're really short. Yes. <laughs> They found that the fatigue crack had initiated along the 0.12 inch internal radius near the bottom of one of the two location holes where the hole changes from a cylindrical to a conical shape. Okay, then. That was not... This is a heavily detailed way of how they tried to analyze exactly where the crack started. But they still couldn't figure it out. They were like one of two places. I don't know. There was a crack. Somewhere in there. Propagated. <laughs> there were actually technically two origin points. Right. But one was bigger than the other, and you might have caught me saying that it ran they into another discontinuity. Met. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it became from two footed cracks to one, one large giant one. Yep. And then it fell off. Yep. They found that fracture features were typical of high cycle fatigue propagation from the origin areas and propagation down and through the bottom of the fitting. So high cycle. That's really the thing to take away from that. It's because this was loaded a lot, because these flights were only minutes apart. So it was up, down, up, down, up, down. And in that, too, they're constantly loading and unloading full loads of passengers. And on this helicopter, which isn't very heavy, that loads the landing gear and unloads it the whole time. Yep, too. it's every time that strut gets moved. Right, which is why it happened during passenger loading. Ah. They found that all fractures outside the vicinity of the fatigue origin regions resulted from overload separations. So everything else that failed 
was because they were overloaded once the, this particular strut failed. Once the Ford fitting failed. Right. All the weight got transferred to everything else, and that just couldn't handle it. One at a time, everything just broke apart. Because and we say one at a time, but that happened all very quickly. Very, very quickly. But that's why they heard different sounds. The first sound was that. Yeah. Breaking. And then all the other subsequent sounds, which happened pretty quickly, were everything else, causing the whole helicopter to just roll over to the right. Hip. Yeah. The, the first officer actually stated that the roll to the right was a very smooth, gentle roll, he said, because it happened. I mean, literally, it was just kind of like it leaned all the way over very slowly, just because, over on itself. Well, but that's because the strut was still working. Right. The strut itself was still connected to the energy absorbing strut, which is attached to the upper fuselage. Right. So as it was slowly rolling over, that energy absorbing strut was still absorbing energy. Yep. Until eventually all of that was compressed and then it would just... Right. <laughs> Needless to say, the violent part is once the rotor blades start to hit the deck. Yes. But... They found that the failure of the landing gear did not result from any pilot inputs or operational overloads. There wasn't anything that the pilots did wrong or the company did wrong caused this. Hmm. It was purely mechanical manufacturing error. This is truly just like a, yep, we did built that wrong. <laughs> well, and I wouldn't even go so far as to say that because they couldn't determine what caused the original discontinuity. Sure. But the material didn't really work. I mean, that's basically all of the recommendations. Pretty much it. You mean findings? No, recommendations. Oh. I'm not done. There's one more finding. Oh. You found that the flight crew's decision to close the ESC, or the engine speed controls, after a malfunction was suspected was proper. So that was a good decision. I think this one's curious, because they noted that the rescue operation was not great mm-hmm. earlier in the report, and yet they say... The rescue operation procedures for the heliport were adequate for the emergency. I mean, the reality is they probably didn't do any extra life-saving once they were there because of the way the accident actually took place. Yeah. But still, the response time was pretty terrible considering what happened. And it definitely seems like there should have been just better emergency procedures on site in the event of an emergency to me. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have an aircraft land on the top of the building, you should have a way to fix issues that could happen with that. Which we'll talk about. The final finding. They found that New York Airways personnel accomplished effectively the crash and fire rescue duties, although there was some confusion concerning overall supervision of specific duties. So they couldn't figure out who was really in charge of the whole crash scene and how to take care of everything and who doing what. I'm in charge. Now I'm in charge. Yeah, pretty much. So that's it for findings. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the fatigue failure of the upper right forward fitting of the right main landing gear tube assembly. Fatigue originated from a small surface pit of undetermined source. All fatalities were caused by the operating rotor blades as the result of the collapse of the landing gear. There you go. Pretty straightforward. Recommendations. They recommended to issue an airworthiness directive to require an immediate one-time inspection by an approved method on both the forward and aft main landing gear attachment fittings, right and left, on all Sikorsky Model 61L series helicopters having similar installations. They also recommend reevaluating the current inspection interval and issue requirements for more frequent periodic inspections if necessary to ensure continued safe operation. The inspection interval could be based on a set number of operating cycles instead of an established operating time. Because this is how, actually, commercial aviation works. 
they go by cycles rather than by time. Yeah. Because airliners spend so much time, and in this, the inverse is true, but because airliners tend to spend so much time just in cruise flight or resting on the ground rather than performing the loading and unloading. Using flight hours doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't really do much for them because most moving parts are only used during the loading and unloading phases. And the inverse is true here, but like makes the requirements need to be done in cycles is because they're doing so many more cycles than there are flight hours. Right. Which is why they're saying here it really should be by cycles probably because this is such a commonly loaded and unloaded part. So the things that changed from these couple of recommendations, the FAA changed, they required prior to next flight, a fluorescent penetrant inspection of the forward and aft main landing gear attachment fittings, or right and FBI. left. Yep. On all affected Sikorsky Model 61 series helicopters, in addition, a visual inspection was required prior to the first flight of each day, which is crazy to me. Like, literally, they were just like, look at it every yeah. day. Make sure there's Make no sure cracks there's not in a it. crack. Yeah. But they also wanted the, yeah. It's also a pretty reasonable ask. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, when you're flying in an airliner, it's kind of absurd to go look at every single joint and fitting. Right, but this isn't a giant airliner. Yeah. This is a pretty sizable helicopter. But still, and it's, you don't have to, like, uncover it at all. It is an exposed part. Right. So you just go look at it. Right. This is just, they're just saying it as part of the walk around, basically. Also, they required the reevaluation of the current inspection interval and issue requirements for more frequent periodic inspection necessary to ensure continued safe operation. The inspection interval could be based on as a number of operating cycles instead of an established operating time. So the FAA just reiterated what the NTSB said, and they're saying that this is going to happen. Yeah. So they changed the way that the inspections happen. As a result of the cockpit door of the S61L sliding almost closed and jamming on July 13, 1977, the safety board subsequently recommended that the FAA require that the sliding cockpit door on the Skorsky S61L helicopter be removed or retained open so that it cannot obstruct the entrance from the cockpit to the cabin area. Basically remove that door between the cockpit and the cabin entirely for this helicopter, which isn't necessarily the right thing to do. But the other thing with this too is that passenger helicopter service did not last much longer. This is not a commonplace today. It wasn't even really commonplace then, but more so than it is today, and this really didn't last much longer. A big part of that is because... This wasn't the only incident that had happened on top of the MetLife or the Pan Am building, but this was by far and away the most significant. This caused injury. This caused damage to property. This caused so many big things to happen in the middle of Manhattan, and so many, it took the news by storm at the time. So much so that in a very short period of time, this helipad was closed and has never been open since. Rooftop helipads in Manhattan are very few and far between. They pretty much moved all heliports to shoreline along the rivers because they really just didn't see it being a benefit to have helicopters on top of the roofs of buildings in Manhattan, Yeah, which is far more dangerous than just having them land along the water. So this closed a very short time after this accident because it just wasn't seen as fit. They had operated actually on and off from this rooftop for years. So it wasn't like this was from a new thing. They had been operating in this building every single day for many years, but still something needed to change. Also, this was the second of three fatal accidents for New York Airways with their Sikorsky helicopters. The third one being just a couple of years later at Newark. And because of all three accidents, they ultimately went bankrupt. Yeah, that'll happen. Yep. 
that's pretty much the whole thing in a nutshell. The whole accident in a nutshell. Different, kind of crazy to think about. 100% crazy to think about. But that's what happened. And it was probably pretty overshadowed by Tenerife. Tenerife. Oh, yeah. They were still doing the investigation on Tenerife at the time. Yes, but in Manhattan, mm, this was still a pretty big deal at the time. Oh, I bet. I mean, Is it even safe to fly? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but there is today, now there is service from Manhattan to JFK with a service called Blade. You can get it from the Riverside. I believe it's on the Hudson side, but I could be wrong. Might be on the East River. And either way, you can take their helicopter service like an Uber. That's crazy. You can go over to... You can also take an Uber helicopter. There is that service still. And it has actually found that if you're traveling with enough people and if you need like an Uber XL or something like that, something in nature, an Uber Black for a larger number of people in order to get them from Manhattan... To JFK, it is both going to be faster and cheaper to take them all by helicopter. That's <laughs> Do you know how sad that is? <laughs> it's just nuts, but I read a whole article about this, actually, how somebody decided, no, I'm going to take a helicopter. Like, they were traveling with, like, six people with them, and they were like, I could take an Uber XL from here, from, like, the middle of Manhattan over to JFK, and it would take them, like, an hour to get there yeah. because of traffic and everything, and it would cost them, like, $300 to do so. Oh, or they could take a helicopter for like 220 bucks with six people from the middle of Manhattan and be at JFK in like 20 minutes. <laughs> I wonder what kind of regulations Uber had to go through to get that to work. That's a whole complicated thing. And that Manhattan is really one of the only places in the world that they can operate such a service because of the nature of that city. It's not feasible in most places in the world. Yeah, like the here, there's no set. reason to have it here. Right. Which is also why things like Blade exist there and not really anywhere else. Though they do, they have started to have actual like charter aircraft from Teterboro that they operate around the world. But their primary function originally was to be a helicopter service from the middle of Manhattan to the airports and popular destinations within brief. New York City. Well, that was New York Airways flight... 972. 972. Also 971. You can find it under either one because the reality is... It was in between flights. Right. This happened in just a few minute period between flights. <laughs> so they're usually on the ground for probably less than five minutes during these turns. But there you go. Thank thanks. You, thank you for joining us for this short episode. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, remember, we still take recommendations. Make sure you look up your own recommendation, though. Make sure there's a report yep. or at least enough information for us to do an episode on. Yep. And there is a chance that it's on our schedule or we've already covered it and that's fine. Just send it to us. And if we've covered it or if it's on our schedule, then we'll tell you. Yeah. Because some people have done that. They're like, have you covered this? I'm like, yeah. Yep. Here it is. <laughs> yes. Sometimes it's just a matter of, yeah. Yeah. Have. <laughs> and sometimes it's, you know, have you covered this? Well, no, but it's on our schedule in like two months. So we'll add you to the list. Yeah. Of people that recommended it. So just keep that in mind. Go ahead, look at the Patreon. We're going to do a post-episode. That'll be on Patreon. There are blooper reels. There are... There's a lot from this episode that you did not hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are the cat. Miranda-sodes and those post-episodes. I mean, there's so much stuff on there. So and, there and, and you get merch discount codes. And you get merch. Yes. So take a look at it. Again, it's not a given, but it's helpful and it helps us pay for everything. So... Huzzah. 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 All right. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. 
Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.